When you listen to our life story, you'll hear it over and over again. From childhood. Once a month, we'd go to McDonald's. And I can, as a little girl, remember eating two Big Macs for, it was like the biggest treat, and I'd eat two of them. To college. I was selected to go to Japan for a semester on an exchange program. I got to be there when one of the first McDonald's went into Japan, and it was just wow. To savvy businesswoman. One of my customers that I sold a home to, they said, you work really hard. You ought to think about buying a McDonald's. And I'm like, I didn't even know you could. From the Chase Studio at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, you're listening to Circle Back. This is the show where Nashville's most dynamic entrepreneurs share their stories of startup success and stumbles. I'm your host, Clark Buckner. This episode is brought to you by financial planning and investment advisor, Haas Goodwin Wealth. Support also comes to us from the digital asset fund, UTXO Management. Thanks to our media partner, the Nashville Post, from their past support to the Nashville Hall of Fame Awards, to partnering with us on this podcast series, they always have their pulse on all things Nashville business. Also, thanks to our friends at Lighting 100 for helping get the word out on Circle Back. Tune in to Music City's award-winning independent radio at lightning100.com. This is a production of the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. Here's our COO, John Murdoch, to share more. We know that great ideas are everywhere, but not everyone has the opportunity to turn those ideas into reality. We recognize the future of our city depends on our ability to grow successful entrepreneurs, regardless of race, gender, income, or other factors. While good strides have been made in this area, there's still more work to be done. We have scholarships for entrepreneurs from underrepresented backgrounds, but we would like to make more available. We have advisors, industry experts, and successful entrepreneurs from diverse backgrounds, who help mentor entrepreneurs. But we would like to have more people participate in this program to make sure it reflects the full diversity of our city. Learn more about our story and how you can get involved at ec.co. Before we dive into Cordy Harrington's story, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show anywhere and everywhere you get your podcasts. And be sure to share on the socials with hashtag CircleBackPodcast. So I don't think we see ourselves the way other people see us. And I think we all have our own styles. I remember Jim Brady introducing me to somebody at McDonald's and said, don't let her excitement turn you off. It's real. And I thought, well, that's a weird comment. I said, why did you say that? He said, well, sometimes you get so excited it comes across phony. I said, what? talking about. But I think if we can just be who we are, then that honesty and transparency, that authenticity will pay off and people will appreciate, okay, she's a little weird, but she's at least being who God made her, you know? When folks meet her for the first time, they'll often tell you she is charisma on steroids. She's known as the bun lady, where she's built over a hundred million dollar empire. This is the story of Cordia Harrington. I'm a founder and CEO of the Bakery Companies, formerly Tennessee Bun Company. I was born in Waco, Texas. That's where all of my extended family lived. And we lived in a duplex. Um, and our grandmother, my grandmother on my dad's side, Mima, lived right behind us. 
When I was in the first grade, uh, we took a train and moved to Buffalo, New York. My dad took a position as the manager of a Tandy leather company, and they sold leather goods, and then people crafted belts or saddles or whatever. So that job took us to Buffalo, and uh, from there, he was hired away from Tandy leather to work for a company called Vesta Lab in St. Louis, Missouri, and he had a marketing position there. Mom and dad both attended one semester at Baylor, and neither graduated. Mom worked at the nursery school at our church, and um, she was really pretty much a stay-at-home mom. We had tons of love and lots of laughs. So in this little neighborhood, in the summers, I would go around and collect the children and bring them to the backyard. It was my nursery school from nine till noon, Monday through Friday. And I remember what I charged the families. If you had one child, it was 25 cents for the week. Two children was 35 and three or more was 45. And literally we played games, we colored, we did all that. And at the end of the summer, my net profit was around $60. And my father went and bought a gold Cohen. And when I graduated college, he gave that to me. That was really my first business. I was always organizing something, a circus in the backyard, a lemonade stand, a, you know, it was just, I wasn't driven by money. So I attended the University of Arkansas, and I remember my father saying, I just want you to experience one year of school, so go enjoy it. And I had saved money from my entrepreneurial activities, plus working in a restaurant, and I got to school, and I loved it. I burned the candle at all ends. I got involved with everything, and there was no way I was quitting after one year. So in freshman orientation, Dean Hardy spoke, and he said, you women, now this is 1971, summer of 71, he said, you women, if you think you want to work outside of the house, you need to have your home organized and everything running smooth there. So I really encourage you to get a home ec degree. I was terrible at everything. I mean, making clothes. I remember sitting up in the dorm at night with that machine going, nah, 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 and I'd go, nah, 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 have to undo things. It was a terrible experience. But I did graduate with a home ec degree. I was selected to go to Japan for a semester on an exchange program. The flight to Japan was my first airplane flight. I taught English over there on the side, and it, it was life-changing. I fell in love with the people, in love with the culture, in love with learning about how they think. Every day, I just was ignited with new experiences and new tastes and new smells and new people, new ways of thinking. And we studied global economics in the courses. So it was it was just mind-boggling. And I, you know, I got a fierce love of travel from that experience. 
between my junior and senior year, began to work for a company called Intrav, where I escorted groups of doctors, lawyers, and education, like the University of Illinois or University of Nebraska alumni on trips to different places in the world. And we would visit three countries, Hong Kong, Bali, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, Tahiti, three different countries, three in Europe, whatever. So I really got to see a lot of the world. And I dreamed that one day I could afford to buy a trip like that. I continued that until I married my college sweetheart in 1977, and I quit to be married and live with him. When we moved to Jonesboro after we married, I worked in a travel agency there. Uh, We weren't there very long until a guy by the name of A.C. Moncrief had met a friend of mine And he came from Russellville and said, with your travel background, I want you to come run our travel company. And and I said, well, my husband has a job with DuPont. And um, he said, well, I think I could get him a job with the nuclear plant because they were building Arkansas Nuclear One. So we moved there. I ran his travel company. And at the time, he also had a real estate company. And I went ahead and got my license, and it was very short order that I was making quite a bit more money in real estate than I was the salary he was paying me to run the travel. So um, I wanted to buy a piece of property, and in order to buy it, he wanted me to pay my the listing fee and the selling commission, and it just seemed ridiculous to me. Why would I do that? I mean, we're talking about $1,200, but to me, that was like talking about a million two today. And so I thought, I'll just open my own. No planning. I, I did feel pretty rich. I had almost $600 in the bank and no debt. And so, you know, I'm, I'm richer than you know what. And went and found an office, bartered from my office space from Dr. Johnny King, leased my chair and my desk. My desk was $3 a month. My chair was $1.50 a month and opened up a real estate company. And um, it took off. It was just a bunch of women, and we would go into the houses and say, we need to paint these walls and freshen this up and move the furniture. At the time, we didn't know we were doing what's called staging. You know, we just did what made sense. Just as all the furniture seemed to be perfectly in place, so to speak, a deep personal setback rearranged everything. It was very hard, a very hard divorce because I had never met or known of anybody that had divorced firsthand. And there was a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of, oh my gosh, how am I gonna make it? Um, Sadness, loss of a dream, very traumatic. And I'm sure everybody feels like that when they go through a divorce, but it just felt extremely magnified. And the fact that the kids were so young, um, they were not yet one, three and five. And so, I felt a great sense of survival mode. How am I gonna survive? How am I gonna take care of the kids? 
But what I would do is when I would work, I would try to work while they were asleep or while they were at daycare. So if they were asleep, then um, I didn't feel guilty. So, for example, I'd get up at four in the morning, uh, I'd do a lot of what I needed to do, and then uh, the babysitter would take them to pre-K, uh, like a pre-kindergarten kind of location. And then when I picked them up, I tried to be very with them from like three o'clock until they went back to bed, and then I would hit the books. And the reason I say hit the books is because after we divorced, I knew that working nights and weekends wasn't going to work for a single mom. And one of my customers that I sold a home to, the Foyer Hans, had come to town to buy the McDonald's. McDonald's and you, McDonald's and you, sharing good times together. And they said, you work really hard. You ought to think about buying a McDonald's. And I'm like, I didn't even know you could. And I saw where they lived, the cars they drove, the time they had with their kids. And I knew that was for me. So when I applied to become a McDonald's franchisee, I'm, that's a whole different story, all the interviews and such. But when you get selected to go through the registered applicant program, they place you in a restaurant and you work for free for 2,200 hours. And so the restaurant that they put me in was in Little Rock, which was an hour and 15 minutes away. So in order for me to open the restaurant and at four in the morning, I would be driving down the interstate. I remember so many mornings that the sun coming up and the tears streaming down my face, you know, because I'd had the little girl spend the night so that when the kids woke up, the college student was there. I drove, worked eight hours, came home, worked real estate, fed the kids, played with the kids, took them to soccer, blah, 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 and then studied my manual because there was a lot to memorize and learn uh, in the evenings. When I applied, they told me that 56,000 applicants had come in that same year, and they were going to pick 100, and they never promise you you're going to get a restaurant. They promise you the opportunity to learn, and then they see how you lead and how you learn and decide if they're going to let you become an owner-operator. It's called a registered applicant program. And... So the interviews that I had were both in Kansas City and Denver, and they were three or four hour interviews of what makes you think you can run a McDonald's, because I hadn't worked in a restaurant. And, you know, my answer was, these are working girls' hands. I'll work hard. I'll give it everything I've got. And thankfully, the door creaked open, and then I did all of the working shifts in the McDonald's to learn how to operate a restaurant. All the time thinking I would get to stay in Russellville because I loved the community. I had been involved with the Junior Auxiliary, the Chamber. I loved all of the doctors that I'd sold homes to. They were my friends. And Gary and Madeline Feuerhahn did not like Russellville. They wanted to move. So I thought, this is perfect. I'll get to buy their McDonald's. Well, it doesn't work that way because when you get finished with your training, then McDonald's tries to place you in a store. And they the way it is is you wait, and then one day you get a phone call. 
I didn't take the first store they offered me and was told that I might not get another offer. And finally, I got, a, I got an offer, uh, Centralia, Illinois, and I didn't know where that was. And he said, well, this man's retiring and he's got other stores. I said, well, what else does he have? Well, he has Effingham, but that's the highest volume store in our region. You can't have that. And I said, well, that's the one I want. <laughs> So thankfully, I was able to get it, and it was a very high-volume store at the time because it was on the interstate. And I loved the community of Effingham. It was very similar to Russellville in that it was a town of about 10,000 people, so you really could get involved and get to know your neighbors. But the restaurant that I bought sales that year, this was in 1989, did $1,650,000. It was one of the top stores. I believe average store sales at that time were in the seven or 800. So that was a high volume store. I, um, I can tell you that my CPA, my lawyer, everybody thought I was crazy to, number one, pay that much, and number two, move to Effingham, Illinois to run a McDonald's. I paid a dollar on the dollar, which was a premium. You heard that right. She paid $1.65 million for a single McDonald's. So how did she finance it? I had to come up with $450,000 down, and I didn't have four fifty. I had, by the time I sold my house and a couple of pieces of real estate, I had about two twenty-five. dollars and then the banker that had seen me work through real estate for the years that I was there gave me a signature loan for the balance to get to 450, or I wouldn't have had the down payment. And I remember that my monthly payment was 27,000 a month to pay off that seven-year note. Cordia's supersized determination certainly made her stand out. But how did she convince McDonald's to allow her to buy one of their most valuable restaurants? The regional manager that made the decisions, Kevin Dunn, and today he's still a great friend. And I think when he offered me the first store, I was, I was really in a very small minority of women that had gone through the program. In fact, you know, one of the very first. And I think he thought getting a woman in the region would be a good thing for his career move. And when I said no to that awful first restaurant, you know, I think he got a little bit of sass. And, and we just started, we had a friendly tease back and forth. So when he called, he said, I've got just the perfect restaurant for you, Centralia, Illinois. And I said, okay, yeah, right. I don't even know that where that is. What else do you have? And, you know, it was that sass. And finally, when I went to see it, obviously, I'm smart enough to know you want the highest volume store you can get. And I said, I'll go to the end of the earth, which was what I felt like Effingham, uh, Central Illinois was, but I want Effingham, you know. So it was, it was a lot of joking back and forth to get past that barrier. So Cordia was able to cajole McDonald's into letting her buy a better location. But fast food wasn't off to a fast start, at least initially. So when I got the keys to the restaurant, the supervisor, the store manager, the first assistant, the second assistant, the shift managers, they left that day. 
they left, and Cordia was alone with everything on the line. Stay with us because after the break, we'll tell you exactly how her determination once again brought her success. Meet Art Haas. He's the CEO and managing partner at Haas Goodwin Wealth. Most of our clients, when they come to us, have experienced some level of success. You know, our clients have taken risk in their lives, and so our job is to help them take the fruits of that labor and to maintain it and grow it. They work with their clients and their clients' families. As they transition from different points in their lives and then also to think about that next generation and to help them with educating their, their own families and their children and their children's children about how to you know, effectively manage the success that the previous generations have provided for them. Reach out to their friendly and helpful team at HawesGoodwin.com. Make your mark, together, We'll make sure it lasts. Additional support for this episode comes from UTXO Management. You've probably heard of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, but did you know this? There's over 5,000 digital assets or quote unquote cryptocurrencies out there. There are less than 20 that make any sense for anybody to add capital into. That's Coin Matier, and he's the Managing Director of UTXO Management, and they're located right here in Nashville. UTXO is an asset management business focused on implementing Bitcoin strategies for accredited investors. We can keep them away from the 4,800 and make selections within, within the 20, the primary one being Bitcoin. If you're looking to make investments into Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, feel free to reach out to them. If you're not quite ready to make that investment, they would still love to hear from you. We love educating anyone and everybody that wants to talk about Bitcoin as well. So you can email ir at utxo.management. It was very short-sighted of me not to figure out that I did not have leadership and I wouldn't have leadership left. You know, I got all caught up in the emotion of the move and I didn't have my business hat on. And so it was tough. It was very tough. And I just remember every night going home and my feet would be up on pillows and I'd have tears streaming down my face. And But I remember getting the call from Terry going, I just walked in the walk-in freezer. We've got two boxes of french fries left. And we're in our busiest, busiest time. And I'm talking about the interstates going through Effingham, the volume, it was like three times what you would normally do. So I, I had to drive a van down to Lebanon, pick up a bunch of fries, get them to bring in an 18-wheeler to bring fries in. I mean, I just make it, it made every possible mistake every possible mistake and um, was just tired all the time. So eventually you figure out who you can trust, you train some people, you give people that don't have enough training opportunities to be leaders and um, off we go. And Cordia started getting creative, very creative. I did silly things in the beginning, like painting my flagpole red to draw attention to the store. 
But uh, the significant things that I did were realizing how many trucks and buses went down the interstate. And back then we had CB radios before you, Clark. And I'd go, good buddy, if you'll pull off the Effingham stop, I'll feed you, I'll give you a free meal if you bring your bus. So that started buses coming in. And then I found out where the Greyhound bus franchise was, which was across town. I thought, well, if I buy the Greyhound bus franchise and I build in parking for buses on my lot, that and that grew the sales over a million dollars. I had 88 buses a day. I took care of my people. I had a lot of initiatives. My CPA at the time, Tom Harrington, uh, said, you ought to pay your people a dollar more an hour. And I'm going, how can I afford to do that? You know, I, I can't afford to do that. Well, he was brilliant. I trusted him. I raised my pay a dollar an hour. All of a sudden, I've got all the cheerleaders, all the cream of the crop. It looked like a leave it to beaver McDonald's. and people stayed and we grew and they knew the customers and we grew to over three million in sales and I was a girl making a really good income. I know what you're thinking. She's working hard and it's really paying off. But what about her happiness? Enter Tom Harrington, CPA. Well, Tom Harrington is six foot six and he's got the best laugh and sense of humor of any human being on the planet. And he had a magical way of making difficult numbers easy for people to understand. Like me, he would help me understand what it took to drive down food costs, to drive uh, labor in appropriate ways, to reduce turnover. And I would take those messages and help my managers understand that. And, and I think it had to do with educating the people, giving them the power to learn how to make a positive difference, what to watch in order to make things do better. So he brought to the table uh, clarity and understanding of what really makes the business work. He asked me out in May, I think, of 95. And I mean, I, I was in a forum group with YPO at the time. And I remember talking to the guys in my forum. I said, you know, he's really cute. He's really funny. And I really like him, but I hate to mess up a good business relationship. They married in 1997. Cordia Harrington not only took on a new name, but an entirely new challenge, supply chain. She became the bun lady, squarely focused on the bread side of McDonald's bread and butter. Uh, that happened as a result of my co-op advertising group. Uh, they were all men, and when a guy passed away and there was an opening on the bun committee, they thought, for sure, that should be me. And uh, I loved it because I worked in the restaurant every single day. And to have the opportunity to go to a meeting away and be doing business, doing important business, learning about supply chain and looking at the pricing protocol, making sure our buns were priced right. Um, it, was a, it was really cool. I would come back to my co-op meeting and they would say, okay, it's time for the bun report. And I go, blah, 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 sesame seeds in Guatemala and flower prices in Russia. And okay, okay. 
time out, enough, you know, they didn't want to hear anymore. And every single time I was so excited about it. And then I learned that McDonald's wanted to increase diversity in their suppliers. And I just knew that was for me. I had no doubt I was supposed to do it and I could do it. I just had to figure out how they would realize that I could do it well for them. It would take four years, and believe it or not, 32 interviews, and they kept telling me no, no, no. I'd fly an interview, I'd fly and meet somebody, I'd stand in front of a flower silo in a white outfit with a baseball signed by a Cardinal Hall of Fame Red Shandings and go, I want to be your Hall of Fame baker, and crazy stuff, anything to get their attention. There were two bakers that were being impacted by the new bakery going in. And they were asked by McDonald's, when it finally got down to it, to pick. They gave them four candidates that were considered diversity candidates, some men, some women. And they were asked to pick one to be their partner. And they picked me, thankfully. You're going to get to be the partner, and they're going to help you with technical advice and then you can buy them out after you, you know, 10, 15 years when you know the business. And I remember feeling hopeless at that point. And and that's really where Tom was good because all of a sudden Tom leads forward and puts his hands on the table. He said, now boys, do you really think she can live on that? <laughs> well, the whole room cracked up laughing. and And I got the courage from that to just say, I can't do this unless I'm 51% partner and we need to budget in the pay cuts. So to make a long story short, they went along with it. You know, you just get that gut instinct. I think entrepreneurs, people that start their own business, they just get a gut instinct that they can do it or they see a better way. I knew going into the bakery, I was going to take probably 75% pay cut um, in order to cash flow the bakery, and I was going to go into debt $15 million. And we broke ground in June of 96, and if you really look at the Federal Reserve charts, we were going into a recession, so by November, of 96, same store sales, bun sales, had dropped 38%, first time in 12 years. And at that point, McDonald's said, well, we need to mothball the bakery. Well, what mothball the bakery means, stop where you are, leave that hole in the ground, and because we're not gonna need it, because the the other bakeries were down also, so they then had, had enough capacity to serve. And I still had the three restaurants. I was driving up here once a week. No, I was driving back there once a week to check on my restaurants. I'd moved the children here in August so that they began school in August, in uh, September of 96. So I had the house, I had the big hole in the ground, and I had the restaurants, and we didn't know if we were going to move forward. The decision was finally made, it was outside of my control, to go forward with the bakery knowing that we wouldn't have the volume we need to cash flow. 
so we, when we opened, instead of being able to offer our great employees 40 hours of work a week, we only had 22 to 28 hours. And we're losing quite a bit of money every month. It was very, very stressful. I had thankfully set aside some money from the sale of my restaurants to help. I thought if we ever have a crisis, at least I've got some cash. Well, I literally went through every bit of that money just meeting payroll. And I kept going to Oak Brook to McDonald's to say, what can we do? What about this? What about that? And they didn't have anywhere to pull volume from. They would have, I believe they would have if they could have, but the sales volume was down everywhere. That was the hardest time in my business career, for sure, because it just kept going on. And, and you, it was like watching yourself in slow motion. And yet, you, you know, I knew I had that hope in my gut that we could do it, we could figure it out. And so finally, I did a cold call with Pepperidge Farm, was able to sell them on us handling a new bun that they were gonna sell to KFC. And it was a proprietary Pepperidge Farm bun, but they didn't have the capacity to do it. And I was so excited and went to McDonald's and I still remember the vice president of the supply chain, veins popping out in his neck. You can't do that. And I'm like, I'm gonna go bankrupt. So Tom, in his brilliance, had come up with a pricing protocol that would be very transparent, that would enable both Pepperidge Farm and McDonald's to benefit from the extra volume being in the plant. And that's what we did. We had a group of operators. We presented that to them. They were very pro that approach because in essence, it lowered the cost of their buns into the restaurant. and. It gave us, it filled our plant up. We went from 22 to 28 hours a week to 138 hours a week. So we started cash flowing. <laughs> and the last 22,000 I had left out of my 4.3 million, the last 22,000 I had in my account, along with the first check from Pepperidge Farm met payroll. So, you know, it was by the grace of God. It was really, the timing was divine. The bun lady had successfully transitioned from restaurant operator to baker for an entire region. It was time to exhale, expand, and vertically integrate. Being in manufacturing is very different than being in uh, real estate or restaurants because it's like a domino. If one little domino happens, the whole thing goes. For example, we were doing a national rollout to help McDonald's with a new product they were launching, which was an artisan bun at my Nashville plant. And they were counting on us to serve 11 manufacturing plants. And national advertising has started, my new plant started up. Our new $3.5 million spiral freezer comes off of its foundation and collapses. So not only could we not bake, of course, it's the domino effect. So th at that point, I get a call at five in the morning, the phone rings and I answer it and they said, nobody's died. And I said, okay, <laughs> what else? <laughs> and they complain, you know, they explain that this 
brand new spiral freezer has collapsed. And so I'm not about to break supply chain for McDonald's. That is like the holy grail. And I'm hiring trucks to get product from Vancouver. I'm chartering planes to go get parts from Pennsylvania. I'm flying up to Oak Brook to let them know that this was a real quirk, you know, because that kind of thing can stay with you for a long time. After we took Pepperidge Farm, we bought from Mr. Rich a building on Armory Drive. So I had this big plant and all I was doing was packaging in it. And so I went to McDonald's and said, let me, you know, they need an English muffin capacity. So I built an English muffin line. And then the across the street neighbors, O'Charlie's, decided they were going to close their commissary. So we competed against four public baking companies at the time to handle their delicious O'Charlie's rolls. And when we won that, the head of the commissary at the time, Sonny, said, well, we've got a deal to buy this cold storage freezer over here for our meats, but our board doesn't want us to do it. Will you buy it? Okay, so I bought the cold storage freezer, took on their um, offer and acceptance, and then built out the cold storage freezer to do their rolls. So we could do the rolls and put them right in the freezer because they're like a dough puck. So that started the cold storage business. And then I got, I felt like we were getting cheated on trucking. So I started the trucking company, Bun Lady Transport. And a lot of it was just servicing the customers. You know, it wasn't no strategic plan, no return on investment, more, uh, this seems logical to take care of the customers. By expanding into new products and new markets, Cordia and Tom methodically and fitfully built Tennessee Bun Company over two decades. In 2015, with the reach well beyond McDonald's, they would change the name to the bakery companies. Cordia and crew won more awards than we can possibly name. She even became a bit of a celebrity. But again, there was change in the offing. In uh, November of 18, I went to meet with Michael Sontag, our estate attorney. My husband and I did. We were trying to button up some estate paperwork. And he's going, how's the business? I said, it's awesome. We are getting ready to build a big bakery for Pepperidge Farm over in Arkansas. Oh, really? How big a bakery? I said, oh, it'll be about 70 million. And he said, and how old are you? And I got real quiet. And he said, you are crazy. Why are you going to, because I was practically debt free and I had all these plants and things were going great. And I had a great president. I had a pretty good life. And uh, he said, are you nuts? Why would you roll the dice yet again? And I said, well, you, you can't keep good people if you don't have growth going on and opportunities for them. And he said, well, you owe it to yourself and to your family to understand really what you've got today. And I want to put you in touch with some people that can evaluate what your business value is. And I'm like, okay, you know, I have no intention of selling any or all, any or all of it, but okay. So we went through that process over the next couple of months and we were sort of surprised at what the value was of the business and what the opportunity could be that we could really become quite a big business. 
And I'm the incoming president of American Baker Association. So I was at an ABA meeting and we had a large dinner. And again, by faith, by the grace of God, I ended up being seated next to Greg Purcell who's the founder and owner of Arbor, who only invests in food companies, only loves owning bakeries, has owned two large bakeries companies in the past. And I knew of him and he knew of me. Well, by the end of that dinner, I felt like I'd met my brother from a different mother. And we just were so like-minded. And he said, well, I really want to come down and see your bakeries. He came down two weeks later, we had dinner. And then two weeks later, I had to be in Chicago for a meeting with McDonald's. And I went by and saw him and literally sitting around his table, he got a napkin out. And he said, wouldn't it be fun if you threw in your bakeries and I threw in this much money and we had this vision and we grew this blah, blah, blah. And we created a vision. Literally 67 days later, we closed on the partnership identical to the napkin, no changes after due diligence. No, it was, it was like, it was meant to be. And that was September 30th of 19. And we all know what happened in Q1 of 20 with COVID. And how grateful was I to have a very strong financial partner to weather COVID with and to brainstorm with during COVID about putting the pedal to the metal and growing. We've bought a bakery in South Dakota, a second bakery in Atlanta. We're building a croissant line in Nashville over at the cold storage facility. So we've expanded. We're now making about nine and a half million pieces a day. We have about 1,400 customers, all of which you'd recognize. Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, Five Guys, Jason's Deli, obviously McDonald's, all the stadiums, universities, many mom and pops. Um, uh, it's very exciting and we are having fun. We're ready for it, take it over You know, Clark, I still love going through drive-through. I love complimenting that person in the window and telling them they've got great buns and <laughs> you know, teasing with them. And yes, I still love the food. I still love the company and I still feel the magic. It's been 43 years since someone said, why don't you just buy a McDonald's? You can share learn quickly in fast food. Today, Miss Harrington is in Forbes magazine's list of 100 wealthiest self-made women in 2020 and continues circling back to our local community, pushing Nashville to be one of the best places in the country to start and grow a business. Thanks for listening to another episode of Circle Back. Be sure to subscribe at ec.co slash circle back and subscribe, write, and review the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And share on socials using hashtag circlebackpodcast. This episode is brought to you by Haas Goodwin Wealth and UTXO Management. Circle Back is also made possible by the generous support of the Beth and Randy Chase family. A special shout out to our media sponsor, The Nashville Post. Join their newsletter at nashvillepost.com. And a podcast from Music City wouldn't be complete without a little music discovery at the end of the show. 
You're listening to Sugar by Katrina Stone. Thanks to Lightning 100 for supporting this show. It's radio hand-selected by people for people. And finally, a big thanks to our team, from our creator and executive producer, Greg Allen, script writing by Demetria Kaladimos, and production support from Gaines Allen. I'm Clark Buckner, and we'll see you soon on another episode of Circle Back. When I stepped in sweet confection, I need your my sugar. Don't